Say that again, sorry. How would you describe what it is you do to people who might not be aware? Oh, got it. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a I'm a survivor of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church cult, and I'm campaigning to bring public awareness as to what this group really does. Um, it has a, a very unpleasant criminal side under its Christian veneer, and I'm I'm basically using social media and every means available just to draw awareness to that fact. Cheryl, how are you? Nice to see you. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure. Um, how would you describe uh, y- your role as well? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you both work in, t- in tandem uh, to raise awareness. Yeah. So um, I came out with my uh, with my what had happened to me in there this um, early summer. And since then, the amount of stories that landed on my lap of st- things that are going on still inside and people that have come forward to me uh, really got me fired up to realize that we have to do something about this, that the longer that we stay silent and try and, you know, work on things ourselves is the stronger that this cult is getting. And Richard, I never knew Richard before this. I found him through all the stuff that was being exposed with what had happened with him. And I teamed up with him and a couple others, and we've been staying strong with our foot on the gas pedal. That's good to hear. So before we get into the the specifics, I suppose, uh, of your your experiences, um, Richard, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this particular cult denomination. Obviously, it's related to Christianity, an offshoot of of Christianity, but how how does it vary from a sort of mainstream understanding of Christianity? What makes this particular cult so sort of uh, sinister in that way? Yeah, well, probably the easiest way to understand it is to, I mean, most people are familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses, very, very similar, just without the door knocking. So if you imagine a, a JW without knockers, you've, you've pretty much got it. Um, they were formed at the same time, early um, 19th century, the same movement that produced Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. So it's kind of got this veneer of Christianity. And for the first kind of 150 years of its existence, it was just a fairly conventional but strict um, Protestant sect, if you like. Um, but they were very closed. They were very introverted, not evangelical, fundamentalist, um, and they closed themselves off from outside society. Uh, and then in the 60s, they kind of became radicalized into a much more cult-like organization where the focus became on the leader of the church rather than on God or normal Christian concepts. And they regard the leader who they term the elect vessel or the man of God or a handful of other fancy names they've come up, they regard him as infallible and a manifestation of God on earth. It's currently a a rather plump businessman out of Sydney, Australia. Um, And then in around 2000, the current leader, this Bruce Hales, took over and he kind of morphed it again into a commercial cult so yeah he's still the manifestation of god but all their energy goes into making money and then the point at which i started to see through the cracks in this um was when i found that within that commercial system there was a a criminal enterprise proceeding so what you have now it's a bit like a russian it's a bit like a russian doll on the outside they've got their website and their pr 
and their nice publicity and their little charity, which is all geared up towards maximum publicity and minimum expenditure. Within that, you've got this high control cult and there's all these sort of grassroots people who genuinely believe this stuff, uh, you know, 55,000 of them globally, mainly Commonwealth countries. Um, then inside that, you've got this massive global commercial organization, and they're the people that hooked uh, about two and a half billion of the very dodgy COVID contracts from Boris Johnson's government for the PPE. And then inside of that, right in the core of it, there's this kind of core of criminality, which has to do with money laundering and commercial fraud. And then, of course, there's the another criminal aspect, which is where Cheryl was involved, is that there's this rampant pedophilia and sexual abuse inside the cult. And um, they cover it up. They go to enormous lengths to cover it up and smooth it over. This is all sounding very familiar in terms of religious institution. Uh, yes. I mean, I really want to pick up on the criminality aspect, but I, th I think you said something interesting before, Richard, that, that maybe show you could you could pick up on it, this idea of the sort of comparisons to Jehovah's Witnesses. And one thing that seems key whenever I've interviewed someone who's left the Jehovah's Witness Church is this idea of being ostracized from your community and family if you step outside the norms and, and conventions or question anything. Is there a similar aspect of that here as well? Yeah, absolutely. So if you do decide to leave, you are leaving behind your family. You're leaving behind everything you knew. Um, most men that leave have to leave behind their business. Um, everything's stripped from you. You leave with what's on your back and then you're cut off from your family. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, the, Jeho Jeho the one thing that's different though between the Jehovah Witnesses and, and ourselves is so we weren't allowed to dress normal, right? Women weren't allowed to cut their hair. You weren't allowed to wear makeup. You had to wear long skirts. You had to wear a bonnet on your head. Um, so, I mean, for for me as a female growing up in there, and I, at that point in time, I still went to a public school, um, you were very much set apart with how you, you looked. I was friends with a Jehovah Witness girl in school, and she still got to, she still got to dress in jeans, and we, that wasn't allowed with the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. So how, how, how large would it boast its congregation is? How many members would it say it had? It's 55,000 globally. So that's, that's sizable, really, isn't it? And how, how, is it, how is it possible that a lot of this can happen and these kind of organizations can get you know, particular tax breaks and benefits depending on what sort of part of the world they're in and not be more, not be more scrutiny on some of the more corrupt aspects of them? How, how do they get away with this kind of thing for so long? Well, a lot of a lot of their practice of, of shunning and separation and this kind of cruel business of breaking up families, they get away with it because it's under a religious umbrella and it comes under religious freedom. And then the way their organization works, they're very careful not to leave any paper trails. So if someone gets cruelly treated or kicked out, they can always blame it. You know, they say, well, that was the decision of that person's family or his immediate relatives because there's no formal hierarchy. So you can't, you know, find an email trail that goes back up to the leader of the church saying you have to kick this bastard out. Um, so they're very, very careful to not to leave a trail. Um, but that has been changing. I mean, part yeah. of my story is that I did. I do have hundreds and hundreds of emails from within the cult and. That's why they don't like me very much. 
And mm-hmm. social media has changed it, right? So yeah. like, even though that we're on the outside here, we're helping people inside right now. And so we've gotten a lot of um, material. Yeah. yeah, we've gotten a lot of stuff that's stacked up against them. And they know, they know they're hanging by a thread. It's just a matter of finding how to unravel this the way that we can unravel it to benefit everything that we need to benefit. So, Cheryl, you, you alluded to the the sort of crime of the like overtly serious sexual nature um, previously, and I, I believe that was described by the police, a female police officer, actually, that the charges would, that were being investigated were actually sex trafficking, torture, yep. as as well as sexual abuse so please maybe just expand on that on that scandal how, how did this come to light and what sort of things did you manage to find out um so it happened with myself so i um was sexually abused um between two two and a half to probably 11 12 and yeah my perpetrator took me multiple places different groups of people um I was his drug mule on multiple occasions. Um, it's it, it's it's hard pinning this all down right now because my perpetrator is very protected. Um, so much so that even just recently, some of the information that's come out about him still, um, he's still very active. I've been very, very loud in that community uh, that I came from, which is Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. Um, I'm very loud there and I'm loud as loud as I can be at this moment to make sure that everybody is very well aware of who this man is and what he is capable of. Um, I have heard since I've come some, since I've come forward, I've done a police statement, obviously. Um, I've heard nothing from my parents. I did try contacting my one uh, sibling, oldest sibling at the very beginning of this. So I was trying, I wasn't planning on coming public. I was trying to do everything behind the scenes. In my journey on this, I met somebody who had had an instigation or something happened to her like four years ago, which made me realize that I needed to become vocal. Um, It was hard. It was super hard because it was very, very intense uh, sexual abuse that I went through. Um, I wasn't expecting to find... The people that I have found, I wasn't expecting the stories to land on my my lap. And not just from Maple Creek, but all around the globe. Horror, horror stories that just... Some days, I don't even know how I... Like, sleep is very minimal at this point in time because I'm still collecting stories. Up until like 24 hours ago, another story landed on my lap. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard because we are up against a Christian facade that is a very well-oiled machine. It's a very well-oiled machine. This Bruce Hales is, he knows what he's doing. He's a very, very intelligent man. And he knows how, he knew what he was building. Well, I mean, firstly, thank you for talking and and being vocal about obviously what's clearly a very harrowing, uh, serious experience you've had. I I think it it would mean a lot to people to hear you say that uh, and speak publicly about what happened to you. I'm just going to take a punt here and assume it says Saskatchewan's in Canada. Yeah, sorry, it's Canada. Yeah. Okay, great. Got lucky there. I, I traded a little bit on your accent, I'll be honest. Um, so 
what is there a statute of limitations in that particular province? How, how would that even work legally? What are the what are the chances of this individual being brought to justice? Very much. He has a very high chance of being brought to justice. Great. It's just a very lengthy investigation because it doesn't deal with just one man. It deals with a um, a pedophile that took me to multiple places and to different groups. Um, and so it's, it's very in-depth. It's a very in-depth. I wish, I wish it would have just been just one person because it would, I would be able to have them behind bars right now. The thing is, is it's just, it's more than that. Um, I am in communication with my lead investigator and his team all the time. Um, it is at the forefront. It's being heavily investigated as much that they don't think it is. Um, he will be behind bars. I have no doubt in my mind. You know what? I believe you. <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt. Yeah. So <laughs> there's way too much. There's there's the amount of even family members that have come forward that witnessed what I went through. Um, yeah, okay. I have no doubt. It's just a matter of being patient and allowing this to unfold the way that it needs to unfold. And us both, all of us, need to be very vocal about it. Absolutely. Um, Richard, what, what was your experience of this particular religious cult? Was this something that you were indoctrinated to as a child? Is it a family thing? What, what was your particular experience? Yeah, well, one thing that sets the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church apart from nearly every other uh, cult or religion is that everyone is born into it. They don't recruit. They're not evangelical. And probably more than 99% of current members were born into the church so they've never known anything different they never chose to join uh, they're in, you know you're indoctrinated literally from birth um you know some are up to eighth generation inside there and they have um, their own schools now too yep they have their own schools so now i mean cheryl and i at least had the advantage of going to a normal public school and rubbing shoulders with normal people but the children growing up in there now never have any in meaningful interaction with anyone outside of the cult. Is that legal to, to sort of have this really insular school? Is there not a sort of set curriculum that they're obliged to teach as well? Well, they, th th that's the strange thing. They, they teach basically the same curriculum as regular schools. The purpose of the school is not to indoctrinate them. They have daily church meetings to indoctrinate right. them. The sole purpose of the school is, is to isolate them. So they don't get, you know, they don't see this podcast, for example, and find out things that would be, um, you know, detrimental to their future in the church. Yeah, they like they couldn't pick up a phone and Google a 1-800-SUICIDE hotline. They wouldn't be able to get that information. Mm. So their phones are monitored, their laptops are monitored, everything is monitored. It's all got tracking devices on yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, well, I suppose one of the things that many would be fascinated to hear, especially you, Cheryl, because that, that's an awful start to any anyone's journey in life. And the fact that you're out the other side is, is quite extraordinary, really, that you actually got free of that. And at what point did you manage to get free of it? Was there a, a trigger point? Was it a gradual thing? Was it a set experience? Maybe you can tell us exactly how you how you got free of that that kind of oppressive cult you was you was trapped in. Um, so I left when I was 17. I, I was pushed out. So I had a, one of the, one of the priests that knew what had happened to me, it was, I was, my perpetrator's um, wife was his sister. Um, and he was well aware of what um, my perpetrator was doing. And 
he, when I was about 12, when I was about 12, 13, I started to become a little bit more active, vocal, interested in things that I probably shouldn't have been interested in, in their eyes. And he really pounced on our family and we started getting a, a ton of priestly visits. And so by the time I hit 16, we'd had so many priestly visits. Our, our family in itself was the bottom of the totem pole. Like you couldn't get, there's hierarchy in there, very much, a very substantial hierarchy in there. We never made it off ground, the bottom of the floor. But um, there was a specific priestly visit that we had when I was 16 and um, four priests came over prior to church. And most of the times it was after church we got them. This one was prior to church. And they were really getting at us about special friendships. So our house was close to the high school growing up and a lot of the teens hung out there. In this cult, you're not allowed to have special friendships. So if you hang out with somebody too much, that's considered a special friendship and you'll get a priestly visit. And so this particular um, priestly visit we had was over special friendships. And my mom actually stood up to challenge them a bit. And because she did that, it got us into the first stage of excommunication, which was shut up. And it, uh, making a long story short, we ended up getting unshut up because we repented about bad enough and we were all crying. They walked us into church half an hour late that night. And I mean, I was mortified. I was 16, absolutely mortified, knowing that I have to see these people tomorrow at school. And that next morning, the priest that was supposed to be in the lead of that in that in our town showed up on our doorstep in tears. And he said that there was no more that he could help us with and that his hands were tied. And it was in that that morning I had decided I wasn't to leave. I was taking my life. I was that I was I was going home in my mind. I was going I was taking myself off the planet and I was done with the torture. And my mom found I had left a suicide poem behind and my mom had found it and approached me about it. And it kind of froze me because I hadn't really thought of leaving um, a full thought of, of leaving. Other than when I was 13, 14, you kind of look in the outside world, wishing that you could do what other kids do. But it took me a year. So from 16 to 17, I befriended another um, young girl that was struggling. And the two of us left together when we were 17. She was 15 and I was 17. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's at least something good, you know, get, getting Absolutely. out and start. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, Richard, I believe you were, you were excommunicated in a sense as well. I believe you witnessed a, a crime. Tell me what happened there. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, I was working for a brethren business that was a major NHS supplier. And I, I wasn't aware when I started working there, there's anything strange or sinister about this business. But I was approached by one of their non brethren employees who was their lead designer for a medical disinfection product. And he, he started the conversation with, I've got a moral dilemma. This is a foreign guy. He was he was um he was a Lithuanian guy. I've got a moral dilemma. And he explained to me, like to my absolute horror and disbelief, that this disinfection equipment that they were selling to the NHS and leasing to the NHS, the tune of millions of pounds, didn't actually function at anything like the level they claimed. And this I mean, was this uh, during COVID, did you say? No, no, this was prior else. to COVID. This right. was 20, uh, 2015, 2016, that sort of time frame. It was actually in response to uh, the kind of C. difficile hospital infection crisis where there was kind of these superbugs, MRSI, yeah. all that. Um, I mean, the brethren, these brethren frauds are often kind of disaster capitalism. They, 
you know, they responded to Grenfell Tower disaster, they responded to the COVID disaster, they responded to the UK hospital superbug disaster with some magical solution. But then when you dig down, you find out that it's not exactly what they say it is. It, you know, it's disaster capitalism. And in this case, they were, you know, selling a, a, a room disinfection system. So it's like, a, it's called Deprox. They still market it. You can Google it. So it's like a kind of a fridge-sized machine. You wheel it into a hospital ward or a side ward that's had an infected patient in, and you turn it on and you seal up the doors, tape up the doors, and it emits a a fog of hydrogen peroxide vapor, which is supposed to disinfect the room. Um, but firstly, it, it didn't disinfect to anything like the level they said. Um, and secondly, when the process was finished, the level of vapor in the room was so high, it was way above the legal limit for a person to re-enter the room. So there were two separate scandals going on. Uh, one is the failure to disinfect, and the other was the serious respiratory damage to the operators of the system, who were in many cases NHS staff. Did um, this ever make uh, tabloids and news? Did yes, it did. It, it got into the well. Half of it did. The the respiratory damage to the staff got into the Daily Telegraph, and the NHS ended up paying hundreds of thousands of dollars of compensation pounds, I should say. Been in Canada too long hundreds of thousands of pounds of compensation to equipment operators. Although it wasn't the NHS's fault, the contracts were worded in such a way that the NHS couldn't pass the responsibility back to the manufacturer. As for the ineffectiveness of the machinery, there's a recently published study which showed, in short, that, that they tried disinfecting a very small area, a, a hospital bathroom toilet suite, and they, it showed that there was more bacteria when they'd finished than when they started the process. But it hasn't, that, that one hasn't actually hit the fan in terms of people saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be using this equipment. And I mean, their claim is, which they still make, is that it gives a one million fold reduction in the amount of bacteria when you've done this process. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Um, Cheryl, I suppose a lot of people are thinking as well, given after what you went through uh, and coming out the other side, people would have been asking, I suppose, what were the role in your of your parents at that time? Were, were they aware of what, what was going on? Did they support you in any way? Were they complicit, uh, if you don't mind me asking? And are they still part of this uh, organization slash cult slash church themselves now? So, yes, I'm the only one out of my family. Um Yes, my parents knew. I didn't find out that till till I people came forward that they that they were well aware of what was going on. Um, I I've been out thirty years. Uh, about 10, 11 years ago, I approached them on the subject in a conversation that I had uh, created with them. To I kind of want to just let them realize that what was happening inside here there is the same as the stuff that happens out here in the world. I was trying to help them realize that their whole doctrination of separation from evil. So that's what they consider is that they stay inside there because they're separate from evil. They don't, they can't be a part of evil. And I was trying to explain to them that there's just as many drugs inside there. There's just as much of everything that happens in there is just happening out here. There's no difference between our two worlds. And that was probably the first time that I got into a very heated discussion. And I told them that 
about my perpetrator and that he raped me. I just was testing the waters. Um, I never really got a very compassionate response. And so I kind of backed up and let it be again and never brought it up. They never asked me about it. Um, I knew that I needed a huge landing pad to be able to bring my story out so that it wasn't washed away. They're very, very good at washing away stories. And I knew that I had to have um, a lot of stuff going on for me to squeeze in and bring this kind of truth out. And so there was a there was a bunch of political stuff going on that Richard, um, when he was he was hunted down for coming out with what he came up with, they had hired a political fixer to to hunt him down, and a lot of stuff got released to the um, to the public. And there was a documentary that had been made, and so I knew I knew that this was my chance, and went and did a police report, and then went on my very first podcast. And then from there, it's just steamrolled. I never, ever dreamt that I would have as many stories and as many people drop into my inbox or on my messenger or it's, yeah, it's a very, very prominent issue that they have in there. And I am all about saving these children. That's incredible. And it just goes to show, doesn't it? A lot of people were just waiting for somebody to put their head above the parapet Mm -hmm. and that's brought them up. That's excellent. Um, I'm always fascinated as well, and maybe I'll, I'll start with you on this one, Richard, about whether or not this has completely ruined the idea of anything spiritual or certainly monotheism and finding out where you are on that score. Because I speak to a lot of people who've come through the other side and of, of various religions, whether it be like a Hasidic cult or maybe even Islam uh, and various offshoots of Christianity and Mormonism and things like that. And the, the one uh, pervasive theme appears to be they're very staunch atheists now it's like they've, they've they've either decided that religion's far too harmful or they escaped their particular religion by reading reading a lot of sort of enlightenment enlightenment thinkers and things like that so richard if you don't mind me asking it's not too personal where are you are in terms of the whole religion god spiritual thing now yeah i i kind of like the phrase spiritual but not religious um yeah. i mean i'm not a I'm not a hardline rationalist. I don't believe in anything supernatural. Um, I believe in God in the sense that God exists in the collective of humanity as a um, a kind of the summation of everything that's good and positive and right. But I don't believe in the kind of old man with with a beard who throws thunderbolts down on people who masturbate and and that kind of that is a relief though isn't it absolutely (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good answer cheryl where where are you on the whole god thing now yeah i definitely walk with crutches on that um (laughs) yeah yeah, i'll probably walk the rest of my life and that's okay i'm okay with that um i trust myself right i am very much i i I guess like richard i'm more of a spiritual person than I am, yeah, what the, what you would consider a Christian, I guess. Um, yeah, I walk with crutches and that's okay. Yeah, I think the important thing on that as well is just being of the view that it's okay to change your mind on any of these things at any point. Absolutely. And there should be no sort of external pressure 
forcing you in one way or the other, which I suppose leads on to my next question, because I suppose um, revelations seem to do a lot of heavy lifting for people in Jehovah's Witnesses. There was this idea of, you know, impending uh, doomsday and doomsday and judgment. And most of it was all about getting your affairs in order for that day. And that would help them justify ostracizing family and, and loved ones and things like that. And I'm just wondering, is there a particular central aspect to this uh, denomination that's similar? Is there one particular focus that they fixate on in order to justify a lot of their behavior? Uh, yeah, no, they are very much a doomsday cult and the rapture, as they call it, yeah. is always just around the corner and it's always two or three years ahead. I mean, I found some notes back from, I think it was 2014, um, couldn't give you the exact year, quotation from the great leader, we have four years left to make money, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. The imp and then the implication was, you know, we'll make all this money, then we're going to sell all our businesses, and then we can retire from the world altogether, and we'll just live on the cash until the Lord comes and we all get lifted up into the sky. Well, now we're nearly 2023, and they're still in the business of making more and more money. So it's like the carrot and the donkey. The donkey moves and the, and the carrot moves. They're always saving up for some massive event. And the event mysteriously proceeds at a rate of about 12 months per year ahead of them. And um, But, you know, the, the donkey is not an animal noted for its intelligence. And so <laughs> off, off they go down the road. Did they ever? Did they ever try to justify these false predictions? Is it a case of it's been postponed or we miscalculated? Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, the Lord is so pleased with what He has in the saints that He's granted yeah. us a few more years. You know. Or the other one is, well, you know, the Lord is ready, but we're not ready. Or the world is ripe for judgment, but the saints aren't ready for the rapture. Yeah, they, they've got all the standards. It's a lot of moving parts. It's very complicated, yeah, yeah. isn't it? A lot yeah, the goalpost moves a lot faster than the ball in this particular kind of <laughs> uh, Cheryl, I'm, I'm always fascinated about, uh, because I, I never had a particularly, I've become sort of a religious critic over the years, but I, I think people assume that maybe I had a bad religious experience. And it's completely the opposite for me. I had a, I went to sort of very wishy-washy Church of England primary school and then was basically left alone. And it was never anything that was enforced in my household. Very lucky in that respect. But as I, re I got a bit older, I assumed that everyone else had the same experience and obviously not. And that, that really peaked my interest and one of the things that i find hard to explain to a lot of my sort of secular humanist is this um the concept of hellfire is a very real thing if you are in the mix there in terms of religion that that is enforced so steeply uh, in harsh religious environments that it is a fear that people carry with them forever and i just wanted to, maybe you could just talk about that concept in terms of fear as a motivating force in terms of religious uh, indoctrination yeah and i mean the pbcc that's that's their thing they do from the tiny, tiny, tiny child, right, is it is any way, shape or form that they can make you fearful, you are supposed to be fearful, right? That is, that is what you are raised to be is to be fearful of everything. If you're not fearful, you are not in your righteous position. So that's taught to you. I remember going to communion at 6am and petrified to walk in to the meeting hall I would just be like, here it comes, the, the floor, the ground's going to open up and it's a pit of fire and I'm going in it because that's what we were told all the time, especially within our family, right? I mean, I would be stopping my paper out at age 13 and be like, you know, you're not, you're doing the devil's work and how are you going to be when you're breaking bread on Sunday morning? And, you know, like 
they just any chance they get it's fear 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 priestly visits were not this sitting down and having compassion for the young ones not once in my whole rebellion years did someone come and sit down and say to me cheryl what's wrong like really what's wrong with you what's happened nobody ever did that well i could feel like i could speak to you both all evening and i'd mm -hmm. love an opportunity to speak to you again at some point hopefully but uh, maybe you could tell our audience and people in the chat where they can find out more information on your work um so we have our own podcast called get a life um Excult conversations plus there's a youtube channel called pbcc uh podcast and every podcast that we've ever done it is filled with information on my story richard's story and many other stories and yeah, we are continuing to keep doing what we're doing. Anything to add, Richard? No, I think that's great. I really appreciate the the opportunity to come on. Yes. Um, thank you very much. Thank yes, you both. Thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure. Wish you all the best. Okay, Thanks. take care.